True Crime Friends, welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, I hope it gets better for you. I'm feeling just a little overwhelmed, I guess, today. Um, my schedule, like my recording schedule has changed. So instead of doing it more so in the mornings when I normally do it, I'm doing it now at night. And after a long day, I'm just, I'm tired. And I'm already ready for it to be Friday. (laughs) Just so I can sleep till whenever I want to and not have to wake up at 6.30. But here we are. At least, you know, I get to talk about my favorite topic, true crime. So I guess in some ways it's a win-win. You know, it's just sometimes changing schedules suck, you know? It's just difficult sometimes to have to, you know, adjust to the changes and things. But I'm getting there. We're getting there. Anyway, I'm very excited for this case today. It's definitely an interesting one, as most of them are anyway. But this one in particular. In this one, we have a family annihilators situation. So... Before we get into the episode, I just want to go over a few housekeeping things. Please make sure you follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia and on Twitter at TC in Academia. Also, don't forget to become a subscriber by going to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. You can access all of my bonus content, meaning you can see like the interviews because they are also recorded via video. And also you get access to my bonus episodes, so you should definitely do that. Also, just a reminder that True Crime in Academia is strictly for educational purposes. All people are innocent until proven guilty. And obviously I do not condone any of the behaviors discussed on this podcast. So without further ado, let's get into it. On January 27, 2015, Cape Town police responded to a call in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Initially, they believed this call would be easy because the dispatcher had said that she believed that this was a prank call. But when they arrived and saw a young man standing in the street, waving his phone and covered in blood, they knew they couldn't be more wrong. The young man explained to them that the problem is upstairs. And when the officers walked upstairs, they saw what they described as the worst crime scene that they had ever encountered in their careers. In the first bedroom they entered on the top floor, they found a man hanging over a bed with signs of hacking and his body was covered in blood. In that same bedroom on the floor just next to the bed, there was another young man with similar injuries lying face down. Down the hall, they found a middle-aged woman with again the same wounds and gashes And next to her was an even younger woman. This younger woman had so many gashes and they had bled so much that her blonde hair had actually turned red. To the shock of everyone, the young woman moved. They immediately called for paramedics who described the stairs as looking like a waterfall of blood. 
Police searched the rest of the house with guns in hand. They couldn't be sure if the perpetrator was still inside. But there was no one. There weren't even signs of a break-in. Police interviewed the young man who had called and stated that he had fought off the attacker and just barely escaped with a few superficial knife wounds. He stated that he had tried to chase the attacker, but that he fell down the stairs and must have had a seizure because he blacked out for a good couple of hours. He described the attacker as a laughing black man wearing a balakava mask, so he couldn't get a good look at his face. This is the axe murderers of the Van Bredar family. The Van Bredars were originally from South Africa. Teresa, the mother, worked in banking, and Martin, the father, was a successful businessman. The couple had three children. Their oldest was Rudy, who was 22 years old at the time, then Henry, who was 20, and the youngest was 16-year-old Mallory. Friends and family described the Van Bredars as a close-knit family. And this was despite the fact that the older two were technically grown up, but they had all still gone on vacations together. Which, you know, I don't really think 20 and 22 are, like, super grown up. Um, You know, but I mean, as far as them being over 18, sure. Yeah, they're adults. In 2008, the family moved to Australia for Martin's work. They lived there for about eight years before deciding to move back to South Africa in 2014. While Teresa, Martin, and Marley went back to South Africa, the two boys stayed behind because they were attending the University of Melbourne. Rudy was getting his master's in engineering, and Henry was just finishing his undergrad in physics. They were a fairly wealthy family. I mean, it was said that Martin was a millionaire. And so much that, like, he made so much money that he even started a school in South Africa and then eventually when he sold it, he sold it for 22 million rand, which is about a million three hundred thirty-five thousand dollars roughly, give or take. The family moved into a two-story home in a gated community in the Delzalza Golf Estate, which was like really hoi chichoi Now, South Africa is known for its violent crimes, but apparently this area of Stellenbosch was fairly safe. Um, it was can it's like a university town, so for the most part, you know, it's safe. But like in some cities, like that's what I would compare it to. Like in certain cities, you just you know, it's fine, it's pretty safe. But like you don't want to be walking around super late at night by yourself, kind of a thing. Clearly, since Martin is a millionaire, and this is one of those very like I said, hoity toity places. You know, it was a well protected community. There were CCTV cameras all over the place. Um, There wasn't even an electric fence on the plot. And, you know, the house itself, though, had its own security systems, which is normal from what I've seen and researched from what Stellenbosch is like. Like I said, it just seems like that's a normal thing for people to have their own security systems. They also had a black lab named Sasha. So, I mean, technically they're doing all the right things, right? They've got all these types of security, whatnot. So it's really weird that there would be a break-in and no signs of a forced entry. Now, at first, police suspected that a local balaclava gang had, that had been notorious for robbing residents were responsible. However, none of these burglaries ever included murder. <laughs> like, the Emma was just all wrong. I mean, the majority of this family, the Van Bredar family, you know, they were murdered with an axe that was left at the scene 
and there weren't any sort of valuables stolen. So it just didn't make sense. But, you know, for a moment they went with it. They then, though, shifted their focus to the only living member of this family. Well, the only one who could remember, the one who called 911, Henry. When he came in the next day to be interviewed, investigators described him as being cocky and that he just reeked of alcohol. They were also suspicious of his overly calm behavior at the scene, which, I mean... We all know that judging someone's initial reaction to such a catastrophic and traumatic event isn't fair. (sighs) But in this case, I mean, they had reasons to worry. Spoilers. The more and more that they spoke with Henry, the more they realized that his version of events didn't line up with the evidence. So the first thing that the police looked into was the 911 call which I have linked in the show notes if you want to hear it. But it's quite long. It's actually over like 20 minutes, I think. And again, he's very calm considering the situation. And I do have to say there are parts where I get really frustrated with dispatcher on the phone because she's just super dismissive. And I feel like she's asking all some of these questions for no reason. And, you know, I'm not saying, you know, her job isn't super hard. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying she wasn't doing her job. But when you know what's what happened, you know, it's a little frustrating. But if you go in with hindsight, it's kind of like, you know, you get it. Also, like I said, because he was so calm, she thought this was a prank call. So, but again, like if you have three family members that you know are dead or could be dead, you would not expect this phone call to sound as chill as it was. Like it, he just sounded like someone who needed to speak with customer service and was slightly agitated. That's about it. Like, there's really not much as far as his emotion can be shown. But again, you know, we we shouldn't be judging people on how they react. Him being calm in that moment, even though that's not the situation, but if it were the situation, you know, he could have just been that calm because he's just trying to process everything and the only way to make sure that any help is going to be had is if he remains calm but like I said that's not the case he also though admits on the phone that Marley is moving however and we're going to talk more about his uh, blood stained clothing none of like the spatter patterns and things like that like there was no evidence of him really trying to like comfort her or really anyone for that matter. And a lot of people think that this is odd because obviously if someone has just ax murdered your whole family, you would think that like he would have gone over, he would have tried to hold one of them. I mean, especially when his little sister is just barely alive, you know, you would think that he would have really tried to attend to her, you know, And as I said earlier, Henry says that he blacked out and must have woken up like, what, three or four hours after the fact, like after they were murdered (laughs) from the time that in, you know, the time that he called 911. But like I said, it's hard to judge this. But again, they were kind of right. I hate to not to say that I hate them when they're right, but, you know, just makes it harder for people to 
accept the different types of trauma responses, I guess, if that makes sense. Ten days after the murders, Marley finally woke up after various operations and treatment. And, you know, she was in the ICU. I mean, she had an axe taken to her head. So, yeah, I'm actually shocked she woke up in ten days. I thought it would have been longer. But again, I don't have any sort of medical degree, so I don't know. But again, like I said, speaking of the trauma she went through, it would make sense if it was longer. But because police didn't initially have a suspect, no one was allowed to visit Marley. No friends, no family, literally no one because, you know, they want to protect her. (laughs) She was almost killed. You know, it's one of those situations where you don't know if the murderer is going to come back and finish what they started kind of a thing. So for that reason, they kind of, they didn't let anyone see her. Now, despite her being able to identify herself and what year it was, she could not remember the events of January 27th. And she was diagnosed with retrograde amnesia, which, like I said, the injuries that she sustained to the head, that is completely normal for retrograde amnesia to occur. So the fact that she can't remember the events of that night, is not out of the ordinary. However, some people thought that maybe she might be lying. And either way, I don't think it matters. She was 16 at the time, so she was a minor. And for that reason alone, she should have just been protected from having to not say what went down, but at least given the opportunity to not have to testify. And given the media attention that this case got you know they also needed to make sure that they kept her name out of a lot of the papers and things that were coming out at the time so even if she was lying like I said I I don't I can't say that I blame her (laughs) you know if she is but I really don't think she is I I truly think she has this retrograde amnesia and just can't remember and you know, I don't I don't think that this is something the brain would want her to remember. So without any evidence, police really didn't have much to go on. Police finally got a break with forensic evidence 17 months later. Now, much like pretty much everywhere, South Africa has a backlog of evidence that needs to be tested. And this is in part because of the high violent crime rates there. So, sadly, it literally took the lab 17 months to be able to get to it and test it, despite all of the pressure that the police were facing to solve this crime, or to solve these murders. Thankfully, the evidence that they were able to get and collect was enough to be taken to the prosecutor, the PPD, and was enough to arrest Henry. And Henry was arrested on June 13, 2016. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, true crime friends, you've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. 
If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home, look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Send her a DM and order today. Henry was charged with three counts of murder, one count of attempted murder, and one count of obstructing justice. Police had stated that Henry must have tampered with evidence, the crime scene, and self-inflicted his own wounds, which I don't know who you guys picked up on earlier, but Henry had knife wounds while everyone else in the house was attacked with an axe. So, like, where where did this knife come from? <laughs> if you are committing murder with an axe, why would you stop using it and attack the only survivor, the only person who could name you <laughs> and testify against you in court? Well, they don't really make survivors testify, but you know what I mean. The person that could put you in jail for life. Why would you decide, oh, no, I don't need the axe. Let me get a knife. <laughs> It just doesn't make sense. The trial started in April 2017, and of course, Henry pleaded not guilty. A neighbor had actually been called to testify by the prosecution, and she stated that earlier on that night of the murders, she had heard an argument coming from the Van Bredar house. Now, the defense tried to brush this off, saying that the argument was act that she heard <laughs> was actually the sound coming from the surround sound speakers because they had all been watching Star Wars that night. So she just heard Star Wars. That's what they're trying to say. Which I I don't think <laughs> this defense lawyer has ever seen Star Wars because, you know, she stated she heard male voices arguing loudly. And if you've ever seen Star Wars, I mean, sometimes men fight, but they usually fight with lightsabers and not, not loud domestic violence, domestic disturbance sounding voices so the prosecution also presented a phone call that henry had made to his girlfriend that went unanswered around 4 30 in the morning of the day of the murders he then searched emergency numbers but the 911 call wasn't made until about 7 15 but henry had told the police that he had chased the attacker down the steps before he fell and had a seizure so when would he have had time to call his girlfriend and search emergency numbers while chasing the attacker down the stairs? I, I, <laughs> you know, not too sure about that. Another problem with Henry's story is, like I said, the blood splatter on his clothing. All of the blood was going in a downward direction. And if he had fallen down the stairs like he said he did, the blood on his clothing would have smudged or, you know, done something. Because it's not like blood dries quickly or anything. Like, some disturbance is going to happen with the blood splatter if he indeed fell down these steps. I mean, the only possible way was that if he fell, didn't touch any of the steps on the way down, and then just landed in a seated, seated position. So... 
just just not plausible. <laughs> it was also pointed out that when the EMTs examined Henry that night, his pupils did not dilate as they normally would, which can suggest the presence of drugs. However, this is also an indicator of a concussion, even though the EMTs reported that Henry did not exhibit any other symptoms of having a concussion. The prosecution tried to use this as proof that Henry was on drugs the night of the murder, but neither a blood nor urine sample was taken from Henry. And this was said that the police were trying to get him to be as cooperative as possible. And they thought by getting these samples from him that it was going to basically get him to lawyer up and to be (laughs) more protective and obviously less cooperative. So they decided they weren't going to do that. And I mean, regardless, he wasn't cooperative anyway. So I don't, you know, I don't know what they were thinking. So because of that, technically, you know, they can only suggest that he was probably on drugs, but it can't be proven without a shadow of a doubt, you know. And I did read in like one source that because through at the end of this case, you'll see there really no motive is revealed. But I did read in one source that it said that a possible motive was the fact that Henry was a regular drug user. And someone claiming to have been Henry's drug dealer said that, apparently, yeah, apparently this person spoke. <laughs> this drug dealer spoke to a newspaper and gave them this information. Okay. But anyway, he said that he thinks that Henry's motive for killing the family was because that he was going to get cut off from his allowance. Yeah. I don't know why you would kill your piggy bank, though, you know, because if you kill it, you can't get the money. At one point after the murders, um, Henry does make it out on bail. And one night later that year in 2016, he and his girlfriend had been arrested for cannabis possession. So, you know, it seems like it's plausible that he does have this history of drugs. This could possibly be... I'm just thinking that maybe it was a drug-induced rage, maybe. If that, you know. Because, again, we don't have the actual motive. He never gives it, sadly. But, you know... Because we do have these arrest records, you know, we do know for a fact that he was using weed. But I highly doubt that the night of the murders, that was what he was using. I mean, my best guess would probably be some sort of, like, amphetamines. That, again, is if any drugs are involved to begin with. The other odd thing that was pointed out in court was the lack of wounds and just defensive wounds overall on Henry. Now, if he had fallen down the stairs like he said he did... There would have been bruises and scrapes on his body from the fall. And if he had fought off this attacker, he would have also had defensive wounds on his hands and forearms. So, and again, he had none of these. So Henry's story is not adding up. A forensic pathologist who was present at court while Henry was literally demonstrating his version of events from that night, like literally acting them out. The pathologist concluded that if Henry really had sustained a concussion, there's no way he would have remembered as much detail as he did in the reenactment. Like, it just wasn't possible. Now, for Henry's statement in court, he said that he had hidden himself in the ensuite bathroom that he and his brother had shared the entire time the attacks took place. But 
the blood splatter on his clothes revealed that he would have had to have been standing really close to each of the victims, his family members, as they were attacked. And the door from the ensuite bathroom, like into the rest of the house and stuff like that, like there was no blood splatter at all on it. So, I mean, like you can't get blood splatter through the door, Henry. Not like that. But, of course, when this was pointed out, Henry changed his story and said, oh, he might have come out from the bathroom earlier, you know, because, again, the concussion, he doesn't know. And, of course, you know, to no one's surprise, all of the blood on his clothes matched to each of his family members. Now, he continued to say that the attacker came at him with a knife and that he stabbed him in or that the attacker stabbed him in the left side. And when that happened, he said the knife got stuck in the wound. However, given the length and depth of that actual wound, which is only like a few millimeters deep, it was easily disproven. The prosecution even brought a pig carcass into the courtroom to demonstrate the depth of his wounds and how what he was saying was completely unsensical and just not true. The forensic pathologists also point out that the injuries Henry had sustained were more consistent like the stab wounds and cuts and stuff, they were more consistent with someone standing perfectly still (laughs) other than someone fighting off, you know, an axe-wielding, well, axe-now-knife-wielding maniac. Also, it just doesn't make sense that the murderer would leave a survivor, let alone change the weapon or manner. Not to say that that's not possible, I'm sure that that could happen. But as far as like the psychology of it and, you know, because of the preparedness and the focus and all these things that come into play when murderers are doing these things, it's not very likely. And like hardly likely like this literally never happens. (laughs) But again, not to say it's not possible. Now, in the cases of Teresa, Martin, Rudy and Marley, they had all sustained blows to the head with the axe. So, if you're the killer, why would you all of a sudden decide to change your MO for Henry? Also, most killers would take the murder weapon with them. So, why why would the killer change his MO for Henry? It, it doesn't make sense that he would, or she, would <laughs> just get rid of an axe and use a knife? Why? You just killed the rest of the family with a knife. Why would you, or with an axe, why would you change that up for this person? Again, doesn't make sense. But it also doesn't make sense because Henry's lying about what happened. A blood splatter expert testified in court that it appeared that someone had tried to wash off themselves or some things in the ensuite shower that Henry was supposedly hiding in. The blood drain or the blood in the drain contained that of all of the attacked family members. But the defense claimed that Teresa and Martin sometimes used that shower, which, like I said, is an ensuite to their adult boy's bedroom. And, you know, just to be clear, they were like, oh, yeah, they must have done that shaving. Like they must have used that shower and cut themselves shaving. But why, like I was hinting at, why wouldn't you use your grown-ass son's bathroom? Why? You, you, you're a millionaire. You have this whole house. Why would you use that room? Also, where does Marley's blood fit in to all of this? Because surely she's not using that bathroom. 
regardless of the fact that, you know, they were only there on breaks from school and stuff, you know, so they weren't always using that bathroom. Like, you know, it's, it's their bathroom. Why? <laughs> you know, there's clearly other bathrooms in the house. This is a millionaire's house. They, they have options. It just, again, does not make sense. And, you know, of course the defense, to remind everyone, does not have to prove anything in court. They just have to cast reasonable doubt, which <sighs> in some circumstances, I guess, I you know, I can see that being a reasonable doubt to have, that that could have been a possibility for why their blood was in there. But it, again, that is not in this case. And it's not high on the likely scale, on the probability scale. Another important thing to point out is that investigators only found DNA evidence of the family. Now, if you have a mask covering over your whole head and you're wearing gloves, sure, I get it. You're trying not to leave DNA. You're not trying to leave fingerprints. But one thing I found the most interesting was that this axe was from the family home. And when they were testing it, they found that there were zero fingerprints, which meant that it was wiped down. And if you're wearing gloves, why are you wiping down the murder weapon? Because you've left no fingerprints to begin with. Also, Henry stated in, in one of his statements that he had grabbed the axe at one point. So where are his fingerprints? If he touched it, surely his fingerprints would be on there and it would make more sense that his would be there and not the killer's. But if none of them are there, you know, it, it suggests that someone cleaned it and obviously Henry's the only one who could have done that. The other thing is, though, I mean, DNA kind of gets really everywhere and if you are someone who is literally wielding a wax, a wax, who is wielding an axe, killing people like you're gonna sweat and even though you got that mask on it's very possible for the sweat to transfer <laughs> and stuff like that like certain things like that like unless you're dexter like with tarp set all over the place it's impossible to not really leave any dna anywhere whatsoever some sad details that came out during this trial were that martin van Bredar was found without any defensive wounds and all of his injuries to the back Police theorized that when Martin saw Rudy being attacked, that Martin just threw himself over Rudy to protect him, which is really sad. And another uh, horrific detail is that most likely Marley saw her mother being killed right in front of her that night. And that's just aside from all the other extremely horrific things that occurred. On May 21st, 2018, Judge Siraj Desai found Henry Van Bedar guilty on all charges. He was sentenced to three life sentences for the murders, 15 years for the attempted murder of his sister, and 12 months for obstructing justice. And these sentences are running concurrently. So he is currently locked up in a way, you know, and rightfully so. I mean, this is kind of one of those cases where he get, you know, he's the only survivor. He's giving this story and the evidence just isn't matching up. And it's, you know, a classic crime trope of, oh, I'm trying to get away with it. But, you know, the evidence doesn't match my story. And I'm trying to fit my story to fit the evidence. But it's just not working kind of a thing. I also want to touch on the fact that he is what you would consider a family annihilator. Now, I didn't get into too much of this. Uh, mostly because 
we really don't know what the relationships were like between Henry, his parents, and Henry and his siblings. And without that crucial bit of information, it's kind of really hard to break down the psychology of that. So, but I mean, by all means, he is absolutely a family annihilator. Just what type of family annihilator is unknown, like I said. Because obviously, I mean, the one that comes to my head first as far as types of family annihilators are the ones where the father or the patriarch of the family has shamed the family in some way shape or form whether it be going bankrupt whether it be the knowledge of some sort of illicit fare or something like that you know in their minds these types of family annihilators anyway what they do is they they kill their families because they feel like the shame of whatever it is that they've done is too great and that the family will never, never survive. But they can, for whatever reason. They get to survive <laughs> and live on with the quote-unquote shame. I guess that's supposedly their punishment in their minds, but yeah. So, like I said, it's hard to know which one he was because we, like I said, don't have much information But that is all I have for you this week. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of it. Stay safe out there. Stay healthy. Try and do all the things. I feel like a new epidemic, pandemic, whatever, just keeps popping up (laughs) anymore. It sucks. I hate this. I hate it. But we must all chive on, right? Don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia and Twitter at TC in Academia. And don't forget to become a subscriber at www.patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. A new bonus episode is coming up. So if you want to get your hands on that, you have to become a subscriber. And until next week, guys, I will see you later. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia. I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director. Our team includes Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, Nicola Arguello, our marketing assistant, and Kimberly Dallas, our editor. Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes come out on Monday, and sometimes I'm joined by a guest co-host. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And here's Mary. Hello, everyone. I am the host of True Crime and Academia. Do not forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. And coming soon, there will be a Twitter also at True Crime and Academia. Now, if you're like me, you like to have bonus episodes. I love extra content, don't you? So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Not only do you have access to our video interviews, but you will also be able to access never before seen bonus episodes. So like I said, you can't, we don't release them anywhere else. You can only get those on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today. And don't forget to listen to ivory tower boiler room on Mondays and true crime and academia on Tuesdays.